0: you are listening to the equip podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Tonight we are going to talk about progressive sanctification, and uh, as Rick and I were talking about recently, progressive has kind of been a word that's been hijacked, if you haven't realized that, so it's kind of, we almost need a synonym, right, where like progressive sometimes seems in a negative mentality of these are people who are bending the, the rules a little bit to so moving a little bit forward. Um, I, when, I, when I speak of this, this is the opportunity for us to think through that sanctification always is, it's a process, Right? And it takes a little bit of time. You're here, and then hopefully you're going to be here, and then hopefully you're going to continue to move on. But it is something that takes a long period of time for us to do. Uh, sanctification of God's is God's work in our lives to make us holier gradually. Okay, It doesn't happen in an instance. It does happen gradually. And we must understand God's work in sanctification to understand our role as it relates to discipleship. So we're going to look at, if you will, uh, two sides of things of exactly how, what is God's work and sanctification, what he's doing to make us more holy, but how our role in discipleship, how that plays into it. So imagine in some ways... This is what God is doing, and this, and this is what we are doing. Sanctification is God's work. discipleship's kind of our work involved in this. So um, I always I go back to this um, moment when my boys were very, very young. My wife was gone for the weekend, and there were a couple of trees in our front yard that I decided, I think we can take these things down. You know, they're kind of dying, making a big mess. I'm just going to take them down on my own. Sounded awesome. Uh, and the, the boys were probably about four years old at the time, and, uh, and so they, they come alongside, to help me. I get some other people to make sure that we're doing this right, doing that right. And we've got everything lined up. I remember we were getting it kind of set up to where this tree was going to fall, hopefully not on my neighbor's mailbox and all those kind of things and working through it. He was sitting there watching the whole ordeal to see, make sure that uh, it didn't. Uh, and and it, so the boys are there with me. And so I remember I was in my truck and they were going to stand outside and I was going to try to pull it with a chain to make sure that the tree would tip a certain way. And, uh, but then I felt like it's just safer for them to be in the cab of the truck with me. I don't know why. I feel like instinct's going to make sure I protect myself, so I'd rather them be beside me than anywhere else in the yard. So y'all just stay with me. Probably a smart thing would have been to have them in a whole other zip code, but that's just not the way I operate. So um, anyway, I put them in the you know cab of the car. We pull the tree, it comes down. We you know start chopping it up, getting in sections and whatnot. Once again, they're four years old, right? They're um, in reality, it was probably more work for them to be involved, right? That actually helped they were to me. In that, uh, but the aspect was that there were some times where I would say come over here and help me with this, lift it, right? Now at their age in reality I could lift it whatever it was all by myself. I didn't need somebody else to, to lift the thing for me but what was taking place was is that I was allowing them to help in that process. I was doing the heavy lifting but they had their hands involved and this is the way that I see the way that the role works of sanctification and discipleship. Sanctification is the heavy lifting that God's doing, right? He's picking up the load to make us more holy. But our role in this is discipleship of us to gradually become more like Jesus and to do what we need to to see our lives change. So let's look at the one goal of, of what one goal this looks like. And Tigner. Would you mind going to that back door? I think somebody's trying to get in. If you wouldn't mind, I think you would. Um, one goal I want us to look at here together. Uh, God's goal, singular goal. If you think about, what's He hoping to happen in our life? God's goal is to make us holy, like what? Like He is holy. If you go to First Peter chapter one verses fifteen through sixteen, it says that He has called us to be holy, and we are to be holy as He is holy. We are to be like Him, and and that once again, that holy. A lot of times we think certain things, but the word holy means set apart, right? It means to be different than, other than. So when we sing holy, 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 we are saying other than, other than, other than. Set apart, set apart, set apart. That's what this is about. That our goal is, that God's goal is to make us holy like he is holy. And so through the gospel, we trust in Christ's holiness rather than attempting to prove our own, okay? Okay. So, through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we trust in Christ's holiness and who he is and what he's done, rather than attempting to prove our own. If you've ever tried to prove how holy you are, you can understand this. That's exhausting, okay? And it's pretty pitiful (laughs) at the same thing, right? Uh, Isaiah says that our righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord. The good stuff that you try to do actually even reveals how messed up we are. And so through the gospel, we're not trying to gain holiness And what we do. We're trusting in Christ's holiness rather than attempting to prove our own. So Jesus went to the cross with our sin upon his what? His record. Uh, and we have been credited with his perfect performance upon our account. So this is the picture, right? He went to the cross with our sin upon his record. And we have been credited with his perfect performance upon our account. Um, The the beauty of the gospel is this, is that there has been an exchange of papers, if you will, okay? We flunked, (laughs) he aced it, and the papers got swapped. Mm -hmm. This is the picture of what the gospel is, which makes no sense, right? It it doesn't. Uh, We flunked, he aced, he swapped the papers. So when I worked on uh, religion faculty at a university, Um, as an adjunct professor, which means I only teach one or two classes a semester. Um, One of the things I remember, one semester I was teaching world religions. They had me teaching the world religions course in the science building. Okay, the reason why I point that out to you was that if anybody were to write answers on a desk, say in that building, there's only one class that's happening in, right? So if you write the word Hinduism down, it's not like the biology class is using that, okay? Like, if I see these words on there, I kind of pretty, I, I'm, I know th- these are my people, right? So I remember final exam one time. I'm walking out, collected the last exam, and go back to the back, and they had warned me, make sure there's no messes left in the room and nothing's written on the whatever. And I, I'm walking out, and I see this one desk, and there's just these little scribbles on the top of the desk. And I look in, I'm like, huh? This is the five points of a Hindu world worldview. Interesting, because I looked up to see who was sitting there, and guess what? He wrote his final exam uh, essay question on the five points of the Hindu's worldview, and I thought, well, there you go. So he just wrote it down on, on his little desk beforehand, and and so and the, the issue was is so obviously uh, I, I gave him a zero for that final exam. He calls me up, all hot and bothered. How in the world did I get this grade? blah blah blah. What was my grade on my final exam? I said it was a zero. How was it a zero? Well, I answered really well. I said, "Well, I said I saw your notes on the desk." He's like, "Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that." I said, "I'm." Not as upset with you that you cheated. I'm really upset that you didn't have the wits to erase it. Okay, buddy? Like, that's where I'm more mad of than anything. Like, have I not taught you anything in life? Like, just common sense, son. And he's just like, well, you know, and, 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 and here's the deal, right? If you were to look at what, in that moment, he, he got a zero on his test, right? There's no chance of, of making this up. I don't care how much you do, if it's that percentage of what the grade is, you're you're just sunk. The only help is that somebody is going to say, oh, actually, uh, those weren't his words, those were mine. I wrote that down. I'm the one responsible for it. But guess what? Nobody in the class was asking for that opportunity, right, okay? In fact, he was the only one that wrote on that subject. He was the only one. And he had to bear that. But in this picture, what takes place is there's an exchange, right? It's as if this guy who got a zero on his exam, somebody else steps up and says, Put that on my grade, and actually, I want to give you my exam, and you credit him. Switch the names on. Switch the names on the paper. And that, uh, that exam got 100. The other one got a zero. In my efforts of trying to be holy, right, um, I always laugh because I can remember a test one time in college that I got a 14 on. It was a, it was a quiz, okay? It was a quiz. I got a 14 on. Now, I'll be honest with you. 14 sounds worse than a zero because 14 means I tried. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really gave it a noble effort. I just not, like, I mean, I gave some effort on that quiz that day and it, it did not happen. Uh, but with this, this is a, a picture of my 14 or my zero, whatever it is that I try to show how good I am. It shows how far I am from Mark. And yet Jesus steps in and he credits with that perfect performance on account. Second Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. This this line in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so beautiful to me because to think about that for our sake, right? For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus had never sinned, yet on the cross he bears the weight of all of my sin. He becomes sin. In essence, takes that wrap on that record that I deserve so that when I trust in him, I no longer have sin on my account. I have what? Righteousness. righteousness. I know this about me. There's not a whole lot I can say in my life is righteousness. Once again, my righteousness is filthy rags. So now it's this picture of now I am stepping into what he is. We, we know the, uh, the, the great hymn where it says, dressed in his righteousness alone, right? Faultless before the throne. When I stand before the Lord, there's a lot of stuff. If I come in in my garb, it's going to look like there's a problem there. But to be dressed in His righteousness is something very, very different. So the one goal for God in our lives is to make us holy. But let me tell you about two dangers here really quick. Two dangers as we seek to be holy. The first one is called what? Legalism, Legalism, right? Some of you all have heard about that. It's kind of where... We get a little bit of, uh, we think about Pharisees, right? And we think about all the different uh, aspects of it. Let's make sure we understand what legalism is. Because in my mind, if we're thinking about the goal is to be holy, Christ says there's a narrow road and few will find it, right? Few will find it. So I always see it as this way, um, that there's a narrow road to follow Jesus and there's a ditch on every side of that road, right? There's a ditch over here, there's a ditch over there. You can fall into this side or you can fall into that side. They're very, very different. So this is the first one here is legalism. And legalism is a trap requiring someone to do good works in order to earn God's approval. Legalism is your effort or my effort or trying to convince somebody else that they have to do this requires them to do good works in order to earn God's approval. Sounds like this. Get your life together and then start coming to church. Right? Clean your mess up and then come to the Lord. If I were to wait to get right with the Lord um, after the point that I have at, able to clean my life up, I never would have come to him. There's no chance that I can do that, right? There's no ability. Legalism is do these things, then come to the Lord. Uh, require someone to do good works in order to earn God's approval. Wielding a list of religious rules legalists bar anyone from walking with Jesus until they have cleaned up their act by their own volition the idea is this that Pharisees legalists love to be able to give a bunch of religious rules and they bar anyone from walking with Jesus until they've cleaned up their own act by their own efforts by their own volition what they can do above all else and so what's crazy here is um, Jesus would mention these Pharisees in fact Uh, Matthew chapter 23. I want us to to turn there for a brief moment. And you can write this reference down there in this section. But Matthew 23 is so very helpful to understanding because this is kind of when Jesus, as if he had not already frustrated the scribes and Pharisees enough, he gives out seven woes to these people, these legalists, these Pharisees of different things that they were doing in a religious context that were so against what the Lord's uh, work was in their life. So now, by the way, Matthew 23, uh, get this in your head. Matthew 27, he dies. So we're getting close to the end here, okay? Uh, things are escalating here. Pharisees are out to get him. And in Matthew 23, 1, he says it this way. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. That's a pretty hard word, is it not? Hey, you listen to their sermons. They're spot on. Just don't do anything to do, okay? Do exactly as they tell you, but don't follow their example. This is this is a problem. Look, look what it says, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're putting extra, extra stuff on these people, more than what God even expects of them. Um, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be what? Seen by others. Look how holy I am. Look how righteous I am. Look how good I do things, right? It um, says they, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are these kind of religious kind of garments that they would like to, to wear. Uh, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Oh, rabbi, this, was, right? In fact, there, there are some people that I know that have um, uh, have really commanded people to, when you call me, you make sure you call me by this religious title, right? That they need the esteem, they need that approval. Um, he says, verse 8, You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be what? Your servant. Whoever exalts himself be humbled, and whoever humbles himself be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow any allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. You're converting one person. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. (laughs) Jesus is not looking to make friends at this moment, by the way. Okay, just so you know. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind gods, who say, if somebody swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that's made the gold sacred? And it goes on through. This whole paragraph here is talking about this. These people will make these um, promises to God that would let them reroute their responsibilities to other people. This is what this is about. Uh, go down to verse 23. What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite? For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, if you think that sounds weird, it's because it is. They were actually tithing their spices and herbs. They were that specific and meticulous about, well, I got this. Let me tithe this to the Lord. He goes, you got that down, but you missed the bigger stuff, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You got all your religious rules really nice and tidy. Um, Verse 24, you blind gods straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In those days they did not have purified aquafina bottles for them to drink water from. So these little filters. They put in the water and they filter out gnats because if they'd swallow the gnats, they'd get whatever the gnat had and get sick and potentially die. So he actually had a filter that they would put all their water through and strain all the bugs out whatnot. And then they would drink their water. He goes, you filter out the gnat, but as you're doing so, it's like you're swallowing a camel. You get these tiny little insignificant portions of the commandments you have, but you miss the big picture of what God is doing. Uh, 25. What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. You look really nice and tidy on the outside, but I, I know your heart. Then he, that's not clear enough. Verse 27. What to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now I'll stop there. But what he's saying is, here's a group of people who were shutting people out of the kingdom of God and actually putting hindrances in front of them where they couldn't get to God. Um, This is a picture of, why did Jesus go to worship service one day and turn tables over? Because people were sitting there in the place to say, if you want to meet with God, you got to buy our stuff before you get here. Jesus gets a whip, turns over table, and guarantee everybody's status update after that worship service was like, You've never seen anything like this before, right? Okay? It was it was something intense. And so what happens is, is that the, the danger of legalism falls in this place that while most legalists start with a conviction for holiness, that's where they start from, eventually they find themselves even more strict than God's word. And this is how they do it: by supplementing the Bible with additional rules that they hold as equivalent to commandments what legalists do is they start on the word they have a conviction for holiness but over time they find themselves even more strict than God's word now I'll say this God's word uh, in the Old Testament in that Pentateuch, the first five books of the law it has 613 commandments in it, did you know that? we remember the top ten or at least some of the top ten, right? There's 613 commandments in the first five books of law. In the New Testament, you have all types of other rules and and examples and kind of expectations of what we're supposed to be in Christ. Even so much that James 2.10, if if you're ever wondering if I'm missing one, James says, For whoever knows what to do and does not do it, to him that sinned. Well, what is that? well, if you know you're supposed to do that and you don't do it, well, that, that's sin, too. Just throw it just on out there, right? I mean, there's a lot of the, the rules. I mean, the, the expectation, it's, it's the bar's high, folks. It is. The, the law says don't murder, and we go, that's that's difficult. People get on my nerves, God. I, I, you know, I am wait in line. I drive around here. Like, it's hard for me not to do that. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, I'm saying don't have hatred in your heart. Call somebody else a fool. What? It's hard not to commit adultery, guys. It's just easy to just be able to go and do whatever you want to do. And Jesus goes, I don't even have lust in your heart. And the, the rules are high here. I mean, it's so so hard. It's not only what you do, what you say, but what you think. And the Pharisees added more on top of it, right? Added more on top of that and said, actually, you need to do this and this and this and this and this and this. Why is that? Well, it's because of our rules. Um, just so you know, this is kind of modern-day equivalency that's a little bit complicated to consider, but so some of you came through, I was talking to somebody just saw our last service, that came through a Catholic background, right? In a Roman Catholic background, you've got Scripture that's on this level, but also whatever the current Pope says is on the same level as Scripture. So what comes into play if the Pope says something that actually contradicts what's in Scripture? you got a problem, right? But in the Catholic Church, what's taking place is um, years ago, people were told that you actually had to pay a penance, pay money to get your sins atoned for. And because the Pope said it, it was on the same level of Scripture. Now what you've got is you've actually something that is not only extra-biblical, it's actually anti-biblical, right? And and these Pharisees in the day were doing some of the same things. Now when we get to Let's say, okay, well, we're not a Catholic church, so why do we have to worry about that? Folks, sometimes we make minor preferences about what we think is right, and we hold it to the same level as biblical truth. And we have to be careful here of not falling in that same trap of making our rules equivalent to God's commandments. So that's one danger is legalism. But the other danger is what I call easy believism. Diedrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. So we called it. Yeah, cheap. I thought grace was free. It is free. It's just not cheap. Okay? The difference is this. It's a gift, but he expects us to handle it properly. Right? So here's the deal of easy believism. Many people in churches despise the pharisaical, pharisaical ditch so much. Right? They actually overcompensated and swerved too far over to the opposing ditch. Okay? So what I mean by that is... There's a narrow road, there's one ditch, that is legalism. And some people grew up in such a legalistic, pharisaical environment, they hated it so much that it's almost as if they're going to fall in the ditch. And instead of getting back in the road, guess what they did? They swerved so far, they actually fell in the other ditch. You ever done that? Overcompensated on the road and you almost find yourself in danger on the other side, right? It's just a quick knee reaction. Churches and Christians have done this throughout the years, where they see what's happening in pharisaical kind of deal, and so they actually overcompensate and swerve too far, over to the opposing ditch. So, um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you grew up in a very, very legalistic church. Did you not? If you fall out of line here, God's going to get you, and we are too. And it's just, you know, you, you. I mean, it's just it's so many rules, so many expectations that bears down on you. And so then, there are people who grew up in that, 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 you know, the pendulum thing we're talking about today, right? Here's where God wants us, and somebody goes over here, and what happens? Shoo! Go way too far to the other side. And so... This is what happened throughout, I would say, the last few years in modern day Christianity. People have responded to that in easy believism that says this. Jesus loves you just the way you are. You never have to change a thing. Don't have to worry about it. He loves you. He forgives. He knows all about it. Don't you worry. You, you can't out God's love for you. So just be a train wreck if you got to because God's going to love you. If that's what you think. This trap teaches that Jesus loves you so much that you never have to change anything in your life. And I will be honest with you, that is just about as dangerous as the other ditch. Because a lot of people have found themselves in some very dangerous spots who think they're spiritually okay, but continue to make the decisions that are harming themselves and others. And so... Many people who had an emotional experience wrongfully assume they actually had a spiritual transformation. There are many people in churches today, or we're at a church at some point, but they're not anymore. You know why? I can't out God's love. I'm good to go. I told you, maybe told some of you about there was a college student that was in my, one of the classes that I taught at uh, the university, she came up to me, she said, Dr. Agnew, I want to tell you some good news. It was a Monday. I said, what was that? She said, oh, I got baptized yesterday. I said, ha, oh, I didn't know you were a follower of Jesus. You got baptized. She goes, oh yeah, I get baptized all the time. It's awesome. I said, what? Well, what do you mean? She goes, every so many months, I feel really guilty about some of the stuff I've done. I just go get baptized again. They don't ask you any questions at the church I go to. You go right down there, you get baptized. I feel clean. I feel better. And, I'm a, and, I just, and then I just go until I need to get baptized again. I thought... No wonder their baptism numbers look great. You know, like I'm, I'm hearing this and thinking through this, right? And I think some people have an emotional experience at a low point in their life, and they get baptized, they pray a prayer, they promise they're going to make some change, and they never made a change. And what does that mean? It means that in Greenville, South Carolina, I think a lot of people have pictures of their baptism and have clothes that might even be still soaking wet, and they've never been saved. That's just fact. That's fact. You know why I know that? Because what Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty three, Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruits bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So if you're a good tree, you're going to have good fruit. Now, all right, let's just imagine I'm some type of tree here and I got good fruit. Good roots, good established system, good uh, sunlight, good watering, good soil, good fruit, right? Can a good tree produce some bad fruit? Yeah, there's going to be a rotten apple here or something like that. But the predominant nature of that tree is going to be good fruit, right? Then you got a bad tree. It's just almost everything's just nasty and not really growing. or And you might have something good pop up from time to time, but the tree's bad. It's not going to produce anything long-term. And Jesus is saying this about every single one of us. Um, Easy believism, a form of cheap grace, is this, that... Yes, Jesus loves you the way that you are, but to put it, I think Max Licato probably first coined this phrase, He he loves you too much to leave you that way. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not okay for you to say, I love Jesus loves me, He forgives me, and I can do whatever I want to. If I meet Jesus, it's gonna change me. Doesn't mean I'm gonna be perfect, doesn't mean I'm never gonna struggle in sin, but it does mean this. I'm trending in his direction. Mm -hmm. That's what's gonna happen and gradually progressively if we can use that word right i'm going i'm going to be getting closer to it but the two dangers there so let's talk about these three components theologically speaking really quick that will help us understand first big theological word we love to talk about is the word justification okay justification this is the declaration of holiness so imagine that god is in the courtroom he is the judge he is the jury He is the executioner, okay? And he has all of our records upon us. And at some point, that gavel falls and he says, not guilty. And I look around going, he must have got something wrong here, (laughs) okay? Uh, Because somebody has taken my place. Justification. This is a declaration of holiness. In this moment, make sure you understand this, okay? When I responded to the gospel, God now sees me as holy. He declares me as holy. I am no longer unholy. I am holy. Now, I don't know about you, but the day that I got saved, the day that I got baptized, the day I got called into ministry, my best day, my holiest of days, I was not 100% holy. I don't know how you roll, but I don't know how I roll. There's never been a day where I've been 100% holy. But on that day when I said, I trust in Jesus, there was a different robe that was put upon me and I was seen as holy. It was covered. So there's a declaration, even it, right? Follow this. The record says I'm holy. If you watch me, you may not determine that exactly, right? The proof may not be all there yet, but in the court of God's law, I'm declared as holy. The moment that I respond to the gospel, God sees me as holy. Once you responded to the gospel, you were justified because Christ was willing to pay the sentencing for you. You're justified. It's paid. You're justified before the Lord. Justice has been done because Christ paid the penalty for your sin. So that is no longer on the account. So for my friend who I spoke with who told me that you have to work your way to heaven, and then I said, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe Jesus had to die on the cross? Yes. Why did he have to die on the cross if you have to work to pay that sin debt? He goes, I have no idea. And I said, buddy, we've got to figure this one out. This is important, right? What happens in justification, your scandalous rap sheet has been dealt with and you exit out of the courtroom without any offense of sin on your record. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, He remembers our sins no more. He remembers our sins no more. Uh, The thought of this is mind-boggling to me. Uh, If you have ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's a moment where Delmar gets saved, if you've seen this, right? I would encourage you to watch the TV version where some of the language is edited out. When Delmar gets saved, he says, The preacher done said, My sin's been washed away, right? The response is, Yeah, the state of Mississippi's not so easy. Didn't you knock over that Piggly Wiggly back over in Yazoo? Well, the preacher said, That sin's been washed away, too. Well, the preacher may have said it, that you're okay with God, but that don't mean the government's not coming and looking for you, right? Now, now here's the picture, right? We may still have to bear the consequences of our sins on this earth, but in salvation, those sins don't follow us to heaven. We don't get there with a record of sin. We're justified. We're clean. We're declared holy. Now, that's the first component. Second component, component is sanctification. Now, this... It's not the Declaration of Holiness. This is what I call the process of holiness, right? This is, well, I thought I was holy. Yeah, on paper, right, you're holy. In practice, not yet. So, sanctification is, after you've responded to the gospel, now sanctify means make holy. So, sanctification is becoming more holy. So, if you think about it this way, sanctification represents every critical day in between believing the gospel and beholding the Savior. So, I became a Christian at the age of seven. I believed the gospel. And there's coming a day one day where I will behold the Savior. But every day in between those two days, it's a day called sanctification, where it's a process of me becoming more holy over time. It's slow. It's exhausting. It's, you make two steps forward forward, and you make 14 steps back, but you keep going, right? This is what sanctification looks like. Now, from a heavenly perspective, sanctification is God's process of making you more holy. So from God's point of view, this is his heavy lifting. This is what he's doing. This is the refining he's doing in your life. This is his spirit empowering and enabling you to follow his instructions. This is him empowering you to point to scripture to know the way that he wants you From a heavenly perspective, sanctification, this is God's process of making you more holy. That's God's perspective. Now, from our perspective, it's the earthly side. And from an earthly perspective, discipleship is our effort in the process of becoming more holy. Sanctification is what God does. And uh, through this, discipleship is what we do, right? So there are those opportunities. Let me give you an example. Um, I had someone say... To me, one time that they never had time to read God's word or pray, and they were just too busy, and they liked to go working out in the morning, and they'd do all these things, and then one day they broke their leg. It's kind of a random, rare accident, just kind of a fluke situation. And this person said, Yeah, I never have times I'm so busy just working out, you know, what whatnot and never have time to read the Bible, never have time to pray, never have time to think about my spiritual condition because I'm working on my physical condition. And so one day the leg is broken. Now, I don't know where your theology is. Does God break all legs? No. Does God break some legs? Maybe. This situation, if I had to look from this vantage point, I think God broke this one, okay? He just broke it. Because in the process, this guy told me, I have a lot more time to read the Bible, a lot more time praying. So this this may be a stretch for some of y'all, but God's part, (laughs) some of you are like, oh, yes, Lord, please do the same to me. Okay, now, God's part, slowed him down, right? If God wants to put the brakes on, brakes are going on, right? But God cannot force him to pull this thing out in the morning, right? Sanctification is what God does. Sometimes big picture, sometimes shocking moves, something to interfere, invade, infiltrate our lives, right? It's going to put the brakes on and now you've got the opportunity. You said you never had the time. Here's the time. God's sanctification, my part, discipleship. What am I going to do with the time? And from this guy, he actually had the opportunity now, and he goes, okay, no more excuses. And he finally started reading the Bible, started praying it, and realized this. You know what? Maybe my soul needs more work than my body does. Now, now God had his part, but this guy also had his part in it. So justification, declaration of holiness. Sanctification, the process of holiness. The third theological word is called glorification. And this is the completion of holiness. This is the day that you finally hit the finish line, right? This is the moment where you finally become what God has called you to be. There are two ways this is going to happen for the believer. Either you die and go see him, or he comes back and brings you home. You're going to face him one day, right? Either you die, or he's going to come back. So my grandfather-in-law, who loved to study end times, and especially before he passed, we would talk about what was going on. He said, "Travis, I believe Jesus has come back in my day, but not in not in my day. He's coming back in yours. I know." It. He had a chart. He had it all figured out. Okay, he had it. He had it all, all. He knew. He knew. He knew. But he believed this: you're going to face him one day, right? I'm going to face him one day. He, he's either going to die and see him, or Jesus is going to come back and bring those who belong to him with it. But in that moment is a day of glorification for those who know Jesus. When you reach heaven, you are holy, holy. Completely holy. Not partially holy. Not a few fringes left over. Not a few weak spots. You are holy, holy. Every aspect of you. Which causes some of us in our lowest moments just to say, Oh Lord, Jesus, come quickly. (laughs) Right? Just come on back. Just, just help me get across that finish line with eternity to enjoy we say good riddance to the unholiness of our lives and that which is present in this current world on the day of glorification anything left in you unholy will be done and done away with ridden how do i know that revelation 21 says that in heaven that he will wipe away the last tears from our eyes we know sickness No hurt, no pain, which means this, we we don't even sin there. So the differences of these three things, understand it this way, justification is entirely the work of God, and it happens in what? A moment. God's spirit comes and turns that light bulb on, you say yes to Jesus, he beckons, say, come follow Jesus, and you go, I'm in, right? And it's the work that God changes our heart in that moment, right? Um let me ask you this question. So there's a picture uh in John 11 where Jesus stands outside the door of Lazarus's tomb and he says Lazarus come forth. Let me ask you a question. What did Lazarus do to get his uh dead heart beaten again? Nothing, right? <laughs> Jesus goes, "Get up." You know, he did nothing with that and the reason why I think it's a picture when God in His gospel, His Spirit comes in and steps outside the spiritual door of our hearts and says, "Travis, rise up! My dead heart begins to beat again." It's His job, not mine. I come out of the tomb, but He's the one who's given life to my my body again. Entirely the work of God. It happens in a moment. Glorification on the other end. Entirely the work of God. It happens in what moment? Twinkling of an eye. A trumpet's going to sound or my last breath is hit. I'm going to see him face to face because I either go to him or he comes to me. And in a moment, I will see him and I will be like him. There will be no carryover. There will be no remedial stuff. There's no stay after class and let's do this again. Done. It's, it's, It's done. So justification, entirely the work of God happens in a moment. Glorification, entirely the work of God happens in a moment. Sanctification is entirely the work of God and us. And that happens over a lifetime. Isn't it interesting that the only one of these three theological concepts that takes a long time is the one we're involved in? You know? <laughs> When God justifies us, done. God glorifies us, done. Sanctification, yeah, this is going to take a few decades. <laughs> and even after a few decades, we're going to be close to the finish line and you're going to think, man, I think I ran 80 yards down the line. No, you just made it four. But we're going to look closer, right? We've got a long way to go and Jesus is going to close that gap in that last moment. This is the process. And this is what has to happen within us. And the reason why I bring that is to the starting line of what sanctification and discipleship means for us. Salvation is the starting line and not the finishing line. And the biggest issue that we have done in the church if we have completely flipped this that we have told people that once they become saved the job is over. They've been baptized all their family can sigh a collective sigh of relief that they're not going to go to hell, and we just wash our hands and say, job's done. Job's not done. In fact, according to the Great Commission, job's just getting started. It's not the starting line. It is the, it, it's not the finishing line. It's the starting line for us to go forward in Christ. So we talk greatly about, and I've said this to you guys a thousand times. We'll probably say it another thousand times before you will tell me to be quiet about it. We talk in churches about making a profession of faith, and that is so important. But if there's a true profession of faith, there should be a true progression of faith. You say that you belong to Jesus one day, you you call out, you raise your hand, you pray the prayer, you get baptized, you make a profession of faith, I'm unashamed, I'm going to tell all these people I belong to Jesus. If that's true, if that's legitimate, if that's authentic, if it's real, over time there will be a progression of faith. If there's not a progression of faith, I doubt if there was ever a profession of faith. There was an emotional experience. There was spiritual guilt. There was a semblance close to repentance. But I'm telling you, if you truly have professed Christ, you're going to progress as you go forward. And so with that, this is what I want to encourage all of you. Because this is where it gets personal for a second. If anybody here is overwhelmed and tired, that you ought to be further along than where you are right now. Be encouraged. He's not done with you yet, right? He's not. There's still a little more ways to go. So, um, family and I had a wonderful few days at the beach from Monday to yesterday. Um, In fact, that was the thing. I'd I'd actually prepared my sermon for today like a week and a half ago and didn't pull it out till last night. So, I was like, I was just going to be off, off last week. I mean, just completely unplugged. Just with whatever they wanted to do, and it was wonderful. But um, the problem is, is when you're at the beach, the room we were staying in had room darkening things, uh, shades or whatever. But at 5:30 in the morning, there's a little bit of sunlight that comes in. I'm like, I'm up, right? <laughs> okay, and nobody else is. Everybody else is asleep, and so I just like, ah, just rest. Let's get up. So. I decided to get up and start running. Some days I'd get up and run, and I might go swimming or whatnot, and I'd keep coming back to the room. Everybody else is conked out. Finally, a few hours later, I couldn't walk anymore, and they were getting up. I you are know, like, yeah, let's go do something. I'm like, can we take a nap? Uh, that's typically how it happened, right? Um, but one morning, you know, you're but Five, six, whatever, and if you start running around like around, you know, these roads around the beach, you you come into contact with different people, and I never forget. I came running up behind this guy who, and he was in a up right? He had a tank top on. he'd tell he'd been really sunbathing out there and whatnot, and I could tell him like. At 6 in the morning, why are you up unless you're working out? He wasn't working out. He was just posing. He had his, his phone out. He was taking pictures of himself, whatnot. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, nobody's gonna impressed by you, okay? And he's just sitting there taking selfies, getting all this kind of stuff, whatever. He's taking a, you know, kind of a slow uh, slow stroll down the sidewalk, whatever. And and then all of a sudden, it was just a, this beautiful moment. Um, this senior adult lady just passes him. She's just kind of jogging or whatever. He's like, oh. And these I start moving. And I'm just watching this go back and forth, right? Like he feels really bad at this moment. She's just leaving him in the dust, right, okay? And he was all about looking like he was working out. He just wasn't working out. He was not doing anything. If he was sweating, it was because how many reps can I get my cell phone up and down? I guess. I don't know. He was exhausting himself with that. And then here's this other lady who's just saying, I'm not worried about cameras. I'm not worried about what other people say. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to keep working. And If you look at the, you know where, where they are, probably it was probably harder for her to say this is going to be important, and yet, homegirl just smoking it, okay, she's just like she's just going right. And I, I say that because I think a lot of times in church we are more consumed with the appearance that we are one thing than the actual work it takes to get there. We want everybody to think we are spiritually fit, and we're going to position ourselves in the right lighting so that people can see it. But the grind is this, just getting up in the morning and working it out, you know? And it's slow. Some days knees hurt. Some days you're discouraged because you feel like, well, am I sore here and I should be faster than this? And -and so-and-so is faster than me? And you go, and yet you still keep going forward. So if tonight you're discouraged that you should be further along, you're in good company. With people who still understand that holiness is a process be encouraged that god almighty isn't through with you yet and he is wholly committed to seeing you through it all philippians 1 6 paul says it this way i am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it he will finish it god finishes what he starts he started a good work in you it's awesome he's not done yet Ephesians two ten says for we are his what workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For us today, we are called to continue going forward. So if you're not there yet, that just means that he's just continuing to work on you. Once a person is saved by grace through faith, the journey is just getting started. Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith that is not your own doing, is the work of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. We are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. See that? Not by them, but for them. And as we go forward, God's goals to make us more holy, our job is to follow him in that process and to work on personal discipleship. And so, for that end, Father, We just ask that you continue to make us more holy like you are. Let us be the type of people who are aware of where we are in our faith to continue to move forward as we follow you. God, make us more holy as you are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Equip podcast. Make sure to check out RockyCreek.Church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.